Welcome to the Curiosity Conversation. Today we're speaking to Dr Alice Koenig, who's a senior lecturer in the School of Classics at the University of St Andrews. Alice's latest research project is called Visualising War and it aims to explore the ways in which interplay between battle narratives and different media has helped to canonise ideas about war and conflict across time and space. Alice is leading on a new installation at the Wardlaw Museum called Somewhere to Stay, which tells the experiences of Anna, a Polish refugee from the Second World War. Today's episode is called Somewhere to Stay. Alice, welcome to the podcast. You're working with us on Somewhere to Stay, which is an installation by artist Diana Foster, and it tells the experiences of Anna. Can you start by just telling us who is Anna and what is her story? Okay, so Anna Kokulska Forster was the artist Diana's mother. And at the age of 16, she was living near Lviv in what was then Eastern Poland, is now Ukraine, in 1914. And Russian troops invaded Eastern Poland at that point, towards the beginning of the Second World War. And Anna's family were one of millions of Polish people um, forced from their homes at gunpoint, sent to labour camps in Siberia. So they were taken from their village to a labour camp in Arkhangelsk province. The journey itself was terrible. They were were transported in cattle trucks with very little food or water. You know, they'd been given a couple of hours by Russian soldiers just to pack up a few belongings before they left. And they had no idea where they were going or how long the journey would last. Ultimately, they were taken to a logging camp in the depths of Siberia. And once there, they were forced to work in temperatures as low as minus 40 with very, very limited rations. That ordeal lasted for about 18 months. Stalin, of course, changed sides during the Second World War. And when he joined the Allies, all these Polish detainees were released from the labour camps under an amnesty. That amnesty actually didn't last for very long. So in fact, Anna's older sister, Diana's aunt, ended up being trapped while the rest of the family escaped. And that that sort of kick-started a very, very long journey from Russia. They had to make their own way through Russia to Uzbekistan, where there were recruitment centres being set up to form a Polish army, the Second Polish Corps, that would then actually fight alongside the Allies against Hitler. So Diana's grandfather, Anna's father, and one of her uncles were due to enlist But in fact, her grandfather died in Uzbekistan before that was possible. And from Uzbekistan, the soldiers and their families then crossed the Caspian Sea to Persia, now Iran. They were looked after there by the British Army and the Red Cross. At this point, there were lots of orphans amongst the group. Parents had died in the camps or on the journey. And so they stayed in Isfahan for a while, actually partly to recover in a gentle climate. But they were moved on once again after a while and sent out to, while the, while the men were sent to fight, the families, the women and children were sent to the British colonies along the east coast of Africa, again to another kind of camp. Anna's family ended up in Tengeru camp in what's now Tanzania. And eventually, eventually, these families ended up settling many in the UK, many, in fact, coming to Scotland. So The art exhibition really tells the story of Anna and her family. Anna, as I say, was 16 at the time that this started and her forced displacement from eastern Poland to Russia and then the onward journey of migration that ended up ending in the UK. And of course, that is a journey that is historic. It took place 80 years ago, but it has horrible parallels with what some people are experiencing in that very part of the world right now, in what is now Ukraine, people being displaced, some of them forcibly displaced to Russia. And in 
enduring long journeys as refugees in a search for home. I think, Alice, that that parallel is what will be so powerful for our visitors when they come to see this exhibition. It's it's that story that we're supposed to have all learned from, right? This idea that history teaches us these lessons that we're supposed to know the answers to now, but it's repeated again and again. And I think there's something so important about revisiting these stories that have parallels to today, right? Absolutely. And history typically doesn't tell the story of refugees. So if you think about what you learned in school or what we see in documentaries about World War II, we in the UK at least don't tend to hear that story. We don't hear much about the Eastern Front and we certainly don't hear about this sort of extraordinary Polish exile history, which has had a profound impact on the UK. There are many, many Polish families in the UK who've contributed huge amounts to British society as a result of this displacement, but it's not a part of World War II history that we tend to learn. And when we think about the invasions of Poland in in the Second World War, obviously we think of Germany, we think of Hitler, we don't think of Stalin. I think a lot of people would be surprised that Stalin invaded Poland. And as you said, the parallels are, are evident now. Did Diana begin her work before the Russian invasion? Why is she telling this story at this particular point? Yeah, so Diana Forster began creating art around her mother's family's experiences about 10 years ago, actually. She only started working as a professional artist in her retirement, although she'd done a lot of sort of artwork before that alongside her job. But I think her mother didn't talk very much to her about her experiences, but shared a few small stories that made Diana curious as she was growing up and that she really wanted to explore later in life. And her art became this opportunity to do that. So we began planning the exhibition Somewhere to Stay before Russia's latest invasion of Ukraine. And it's just very unfortunate that the parallels have tightened. But why tell this story now? Well, so this story is a collaboration between Diana Forster and the Visualising War and Peace Project based here at the University of St Andrews. And the Visualising War Project studies our habits of narrating and understanding and approaching war and peace. And what we're interested in is thinking about war, not just as a series of battles, but as a much wider set of experiences that impact a very wide range of people. And as part of that, we're interested very much also in the long shadow of war, the many different legacies of conflict for everyone involved. So we had become interested in in displacement as one of the legacies of conflict. And then as part of our work on looking at different methods and different habits of visualising war, we ended up talking to Diana on our own podcast about her approach to war art. And that became a conversation that we kind of wanted to take further. And then Imperial War Museum announced a big funding stream looking specifically at legacies of conflict. And so it all came together I think both Diana and the Visualising War Project were very much motivated by prior toxic debates about immigration that have been going on for some time, not just in the UK, but elsewhere. Of course, in recent years and months, they've really intensified. So again, our project has a resonance now that we'd rather it didn't have. And current politics are very, very short term in their thinking and in their very hostile anti-migrant rhetoric. So our aim with this project is to dive into history and actually to explore, to kind of exploit the potential of deep history in a way, history that shows us how migrations play out over generations, not just over the kind of period of a parliamentary cycle. And 
really also to use this family story of Diana's family to humanise the experience of refugees. Think about not just people as refugees, but how they lived before displacement and then what they endured en route and then the long journey of homemaking after they've come to the final place of settlement. So we're telling this story now for all sorts of reasons, but as I say, it has become particularly pertinent, particularly pressing at the moment. The irony of the very, very hostile anti-migrant rhetoric in the UK and elsewhere is that conflict itself is driven by hatred and driven by ignorance and driven by othering. And we have a whole pile of history, not least World War II history, that testifies to that. And, you know, thinking about World War II history and thinking about genocide associated with that and so on, there's a, a very, very useful research project that looks at the stages of any society it's called the stages of genocide, the indicators that help us calculate how close or far any particular community or society might be actually to committing genocide. And if you look at level four in the stages of genocide, you're at serious othering of people, of minority groups. And if you look at stage six, you're at the point where debate around that becomes very, very polarised. And um, this is something that one of our podcast guests, Alison Phipps, has really drawn our attention to. Now, in other words, the UK is currently sitting somewhere in its anti-migrant rhetoric at stage four or stage six in the stages of genocide, right? So the migration conversations that we're having in the UK at the moment are actually potentially driving conflict rather than addressing its impacts. So we want to spark conversations, humanise the experience, uh, share stories of forced displacement that counter that, that rehumanise, that don't polarise, but that are inclusive and invite people in to explore and to understand. So that's why we're telling this story now. You know, as I say, it's become all the more urgent over the years we've been planning it. And I think it's really interesting for us as people who work in museums or in culture and heritage as to how how we tell those stories, right? Because oftentimes the stories of forced displacement or of the everyday lives of people who have been displaced or have had genocide committed to them are the ones who are no longer present in collections, right? Histories written by the people who perpetrate these atrocities for the most part. So I think what's really interesting about this installation and work like this is it's an attempt to kind of fill in those gaps and bring to the fore these stories that have been hidden from view, right? Whether that's uh, intentional or not. So I wonder maybe, Alice, if you could tell us a little bit more about the artworks and how they bring out that story. Yes, absolutely. And I completely agree with you. I'm a classicist by training. So one of the museums that I'm very familiar with is the Greco-Roman sections of the British Museum in London, for example. And that's a museum where you go in and you hear a load of dominant, powerful voices. And at the moment, there's one sort of token info board that tries to highlight a story of migration. But it's so swamped by all those powerful, largely male, very elite voices. So you're absolutely right that it's time that we bring people who've been marginalised from the museum space into the centre. So Diana's artwork, Diana's approach to war art, which is what God is really interested in her in the first place, is to use really, really beautiful aesthetics to draw viewers in. She's not at all keen on war art that horrifies, that brutalises, that repels. Her art is very, very beautiful. So what she's created for Somewhere to Stay is a series of 10 laser cut aluminium panels that are influenced by a traditional Polish craft of paper cutting, Wikinanki. And that was a, a craft of paper 
paper cutting that was used a lot to decorate people's homes. You know, you did it with sheep shears. It's a very domestic, um, very traditional form of artwork. It's a bit like, you know, when you're a child and you make those sort of strings of cut out paper dolls. It's a tiny bit like that. So Diana's taken that art form, but she's using it in large metal panels to show essentially the different stages on the journey, the long journey that her mother took. So the first two panels are based in Poland, life in Poland. And for Diana, it was incredibly important that she showed life before displacement, ordinary family lives, the kind of lives that we all have and we all take for granted. And then after that, there are a couple of panels that are about the journey to Siberia, the sort of the cattle trucks, and then the Siberian gulag, the barracks that the deportees stayed in. Um, and then after that, a panel for Uzbekistan, a couple of panels based around Iran, panels showing the shelter, the different kinds of accommodation, whether that's Red Cross tents or palaces or mud huts, little rendezvous in Tanzania, and then finally Nissan huts in Scotland. And the very final panel is actually the really hard hitting one. It's called Staying Forever. And it's just got lots and lots of gravestones. Really, it's a memorial in some ways to all of those people who died en route, who didn't make it to a final home that they could build themselves, who have a different kind of resting place. So these panels are beautifully, beautifully cut out. And so one of the things that they do also is cast shadows behind them. So they've been on display indoors at Kirkcaldy Galleries and they're spotlit to cast shadows on the wall behind. And when they come to the Wardlaw Museum, they're going to be outdoors. And we're hoping that the beautiful Scottish sunshine will cooperate and will cast shadows on, again on the sort of beautiful stone wall behind where they're going to be set up. And those shadows really hint at the many lives and the many different stories behind this particular story. As the shadows get cast, the crosses and the tents and so on multiply in different directions. So it's a very, very beautiful form of artwork that evokes the journey and these forms of shelter en route and really invites the reader to walk that journey and to imagine what it might have been like themselves if they'd found themselves, you know, living in a Red Cross tent in Persia or living in a mud hut in Tengeru camp in Tanzania. The panels themselves are, are really interesting. It's an interesting form. Genocide, as we know, seeks to wipe out people, but also seeks to wipe out culture. So bringing in that kind of cultural tradition into the style of panels is feels like a, a kind of hit back at that attempt. And then as you look at them, you realise slowly that they all show somewhere to stay. They all show accommodation and, and the different forms of those accommodation. And I think visitors will be struck by that as they look at them. What do you hope the visitor response might be when they're looking at these stunning and, and intriguing and haunting might be a, an interesting word to use as they look at these panels? Well, I think haunting is definitely the right word, particularly for that last panel. The sequence of 10 helps us understand that when a refugee is displaced, it's rarely to one place alone, that the displacement goes on and on and on. And so that journey to find somewhere to stay is a journey that crosses borders where you have to wrestle with multiple languages, where you might end up staying in a, you know, a beautiful palace temporarily, but you have no control whatsoever about how long you stay there or where your next destination is. So I think that sequence helps us. I hope that one of the things that people will take away is the sense of iterative displacement, but also the human story, the human impact of that. In some ways, of course, the story is a very, very personal one, but it's also actually a universalizing one. 
Apart from the first panel where we see people dancing, there are no human beings until we get to the dead human beings who are evoked in the final panel. So it helps that story become universal and be a story that maybe reflects, you know, refugee experiences that aren't just in Europe, that are at all sorts of other places around the world. And I think Diana's artwork really helps to generate empathy and that sense that you're walking in someone else's shoes, albeit temporarily, and just, you know, somehow feeling it. Also, just learning more, learning more. We do have an information board that tells the story and we've got a website that you can link to from the QR code that explains much more of the context behind this particular displacement, but also shares lots of other people's stories of displacement from antiquity right through to the 21st century. So one of the things that I think we're trying to do with this artwork is another podcast guest has talked about the tyranny of the single narrative. Refugee experiences are often reduced to one kind of stereotyped image, one stereotype stereotyped narrative. And that's a sort of myth that we're trying to bust. And we're trying to use this storytelling panel to help people access the diversity, the individuality and the complexity of multiple refugee experiences from the past and in the present. I think that's it, is that it's like the homogenising of a group of people, shared experience, but often that's where their similarities end. And it does, it feels dehumanising and it seems as though that's a narrative that has been present for a long time. Alice, you're a classicist. So is this something that is kind of common throughout history, that this is how people tell the stories of displaced people? Yes, I mean, I think if you look back to antiquity, what you see is a glaring gap. There are Greek plays, there are Roman histories that do touch on refugee experiences. But on the whole, our habits of narrating and visualising conflict have been very soldier-centred. They've been very battle-centred. For World War II, they're very technology-centred. And so individual families, civilians, children, Diana's mother was 16 when this journey started, they're often overlooked. And the second-order impacts of conflict on them are often overlooked. So when we do think about civilians, we often think more about physical injury, but we don't think about hunger. We don't think about that disruption to education. We don't think about the toll that it takes to absorb one language only to have to move on again and try and absorb another. And the iterative traumas that are often very invisible. So yes, so you know, as a classicist, I'm aware that an awful lot of our storytelling from antiquity, which continues to influence us today, has celebrated impressive generals and, in quotes, inspiring warriors, and has diverted our gaze from not just the other people impacted by conflict, but the many different ways in which they're impacted by conflict. You mentioned earlier deep history and the way that the impacts of war and of displacement resonate through the generations. What impacts has the forced displacement of Poles to the UK, what is it, 80 years ago or so now, what impact does that have today on those individuals or their families? So I'm no expert on this, but we do have a fantastic podcast conversation on our Visualising Forced Migration website between Diana Forster and Joseph Butler, who is an expert on Polish exile history. But the key takeaway for me is that British society has achieved a net gain. And I'm absolutely not alone in making that argument. And that's something that we can say about the Windrush generation, something we can say about also. It's something that, for example, another of our podcast guests, Wahid Aryan, a refugee from Afghanistan, talks about. He's someone who ends up, has ended up working in the NHS on the front line of A&E. And he's one of many, many, many refugees and forced migrants who staff the NHS, who staff our public sector. In terms of the specific impact of 
that Polish exile history on Britain, it's very, very interesting. We do have a little bit of archive material on our website that looks at the initial suspicion, um, the initial othering of lots of new Polish migrants to the UK, the efforts that Polish exiles themselves went to, to share their history, to share their stories, to deliver lectures on Poland's culture, Poland's history, and so on. And I think what we can see today is we actually now have many, many thriving Polish clubs in Kirkcaldy, for example, near us in Glasgow, in Edinburgh, and all around the UK. There are many second and third generation people in Britain today who wouldn't be here if their parents hadn't been displaced in one form or another from Poland and, you know, who are all part of the rich fabric of British society. So not all people who were displaced from Poland, as Diana's mother, Anna, was absolutely ended up in the UK. Some ended up in other parts of Europe. Some ended up traveling to Australia, to Canada, to New Zealand. There was a general diaspora. But as for all diasporas, ultimately, on the whole, they absolutely enrich local life, um, enrich local culture and communities, and are very, very much part of our history and part of our society today. And that's one of the advantages of looking back over 80 years, because you get that perspective and you understand that all the fear-mongering around refugees coming from Afghanistan, Afghanistan or refugees coming from Syria. And actually, we only fearmonger usually about refugees who do not look white. There isn't the same fearmongering around refugees who are coming from Ukraine. But all that anxiety, the terrible so-called great replacement theory, for example, that was actually being discussed this week at the National Conservatism Conference, that fear-mongering is in some ways a waste of time because over generations, um, what we see is a great enrichment of society and a great enrichment of our public services and an enrichment of our culture. Alice, you've mentioned that idea of fear-mongering, something that is obviously present in narratives around migration today. Was there the same sense of that fear-mongering when Polish refugees arrived in Scotland in the late 40s, early 50s? Yeah, we can clearly reconstruct a certain amount of suspicion, a certain amount of anxiety amongst parts of the British population that was a response to the rather large influx of people from Poland in the late 1940s and through into the 1950s. This coincides with a lot, actually, a lot of human mobility in the world through the 1950s and so on. And what it did lead to was reviewing of the British Citizenship Act and so on. So at the highest levels, it led to some changes in policy and more generally some kind of thinking about British identity. I think one of the other things that we can experience at a much more kind of local personal level or other things that we can reconstruct at a more personal local level is the sort of personal interaction. So Diana remembers her mother talking about the fact that she'd married, she married an Englishman. She ended up taking on an English surname, Forster. She spoke perfect English. And in the 1950s, maybe even into the early 60s, you know, she was a very, very integrated member of her local community. But when it came to the point where she offered to take on the leadership of the local girl guides club people said about her no we can't have a poll running this so that's a good decade on that that kind of assumption existed and another story that her mother told diana was of the story of being disbelieved so diana's mother anna and one of her very very close friends who ended up in the uk as well recall once sharing the story of their long journey 
and having people say that can't possibly be true and as diana says in a podcast we recorded with her you only have that experience once before you don't tell your story again and this speaks very much to a recent publication by dina neary who's based at the university of st andrews in the english department a book called who gets believed and it's a really powerful hard-hitting look at the cultures of disbelief which refugees suffer from in particular, the sense that you must be making up the story of the horrors you've been through to perhaps get sympathy or perhaps even get access, perhaps even secure your asylum claim. Now, that's something that Dina Nieri talks about very much in the 21st century. But as I say, Diana's mother's experiences are that that culture of disbelief was one of the many things that Polish exiles struggled against in the 1950s, 1960s and onwards, despite the fact that everyone had just lived through World World War II and everyone had begun to learn about some of the horrors that had been committed during World War II. So yes, we can see a certain amount of, as I say, anxiety, a reassessment of British identity, actually some of that then being enacted in policy at the highest level, but also at the very, very local level friction, tension, disbelief. That said, I think there was also a lot of friendliness at the local level. And one of our other podcast guests, whose parents were displaced actually to St Andrews, tells a really, really interesting story about the Polish exile community in St Andrews as a very thriving, very rich place. You know, the local shoe fitters on South Street in St Andrews was Polish run and quite a hub of Polish activity. We know that there was, for a short space at the other end of St Andrews, a Polish club and a Polish canteen for example, selling things, you know, with prices listed in Polish language as well as in English and so on. So there's a mix, I think. There was a mix at the time of welcoming and friendliness and warmth and, of course, hostility and suspicion and anxiety. Someone to stay will then hopefully bring out this story that has for so long been hidden and disbelieved of the experiences of Anna and similar experiences of many like Anna. Other than visiting the exhibition, Alice, how can people find out more? Where can they go? So we have a website called Visualising Forced Migration. And on that website, we've curated quite a lot of material. So there's a virtual tour of Somewhere to Stay itself, so people can explore the artwork that Diana's created that way. We're also showcasing on the website, and actually for a few months later this year, inside of the Wardlaw, some of Diana's earlier artwork, which very much relates to the same story. And collected there are some really, really wonderful pieces. So she's got some more woodcut panels depicting the labour camps in Siberia. She's got some ironic posters that are parodying 1940s Russian propaganda posters advertising the labour camps, sort of exposing that gap between representation and reality. And of course, that's a gap that is very, very pertinent today if you think about the gap between representation and reality, for example, of Uyghur labour camps in northern China. She's got some ironic holiday posters that sort of advertise destinations like Isfahan and Tengeru camp, some of the places her mother ended up being, really exposing the difference between voluntary travel and forced migration. These are very beautiful places. You might choose to go to them on holiday, but it's a very different experience if you're actually displaced to them and you have no choice over how long you stay or, or how you can earn money or whatever. Um, and then one of the other items that we showcase both on the website and that will come to the indoor of the Wardlaw is a fantastic sculpture called Cabbage Patch. And that reflects a story that Diana's mother, Anna, once told her of her time as a child in the Siberian labour camp. There was a vegetable patch in the camp that fed the soldiers while the prisoners were just kept on very starvation rations. And of course, the children were hungry. So at night time, 
They crept under the fences and they nibbled the edges of lettuce leaves, knowing that the soldiers would think that was just rabbits when they woke up the next morning. And Diana's mother told her this story one day in the kitchen when she found she picked up a cabbage and started nibbling one of the leaves and giggling at this memory. So Diana's created these rows of beautiful, ethereal white cabbages with kind of slightly nibbled edges. And to do that, she actually nibbled, literally nibbled lots of cabbage leaves herself. But they lie on a bed of rifle cartridges. And that's really typical of Diana's art. It draws you in with the real sort of stark beauty. But then you see that the soil beneath is actually a story of violence and a story of hunger. And again, it's like all her art. You unpick the story of war very slowly in a very safe, warm, caring space. So our website will show some of that other artwork, but we've also on the website been very, very lucky to have all sorts of people with very recent experience of forced migration from Syria, from Afghanistan, from Iran, from Ukraine and other places too, from Bosnia-Herzegovina, for example. Lots of people sharing their stories with us, as I say, to combat the tyranny of the single narrative, to showcase the diversity of experiences, the diversity of challenges, the joy and the care and the love that accompanied some of those journeys as well as the hardships and we've also got a section on the website that looks very specifically at the storytelling we do around forced migration so of course with the exhibition we're using the medium of art but we've also got photographers novel writers journalists thinking about the impact of different media on how we as societies visualise forced migration and therefore respond to it and approach it. And we're really interested in these different media and storytelling as a positive intervention in discourse, while also cognizant of the fact that some media outlets and organisations are weaponising storytelling in very problematic ways. So the website has stories of migration from antiquity to the present day. And then, as I say, a particular focus on the ways in which we do that storytelling, the media we use, the genre that we use, the emphases that we choose and the gaps that we maybe don't notice sometimes in our habits of storytelling and our habits of visualising forced migration. It sounds as though that website is a fantastic resource for bringing to the fore those stories and making people aware that maybe the media that they consume today isn't unbiased in a way that maybe they have previously considered. I think that's us out of time. It's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you today, Alice, and we really hope that our visitors will love seeing these artworks in a way that provokes many, many thoughts and shares in that story with Diana and Anna. So thank you so much for coming and speaking to us today. Thank you. And I'm really excited about the exhibition coming to St Andrews. Really grateful to the Wardlaw for hosting it. And I can't wait to hear what people think. Somewhere to Stay is on at the Wardlow Museum until the 7th of January 2024 and you can find out more by visiting the website in the show notes. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform. Join us next month when we'll be talking to Dr Ellen Garland, a whale expert, in an episode entitled You Say You Want a Revolution. The Curiosity Conversation is brought to you by the Museums of the University of St Andrews.